I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man, and get that cream, black man. We the original. Men of America, the problem is plain before you. Here is a race transplanted through the criminal foolishness of your fathers. Whether you like it or not, the millions are here, and here they will remain. If you do not lift them up, they will pull you down. Education and work are the levers to uplift the people. Work alone will not do it unless inspired by the right ideals and guided by intelligence. Education must not simply teach work. It must teach life. The talented tenth of the Negro race must be made of leaders of thought and missionaries of culture among their people. No others can do this, and Negro colleges must train men for it. The Negro race, like all other races, is going to be saved by its exceptional men. William Edward Burghardt Du Bois, The Talented Tenth, 1903. This is Iron Mike Stedman, and you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son, a black veteran's perspectives on race, culture, and business. Today you're in for a treat, as I was finally able to have on the show my best friend, company mate, fraternity brother, and fellow Marine Infantry Officer, Philip Jones, a recent graduate of Harvard Business School and Harvard's Kennedy School, where he received both his master's in business administration and public policy. I met Phil for the first time back in 2009 when I had the honor of serving as his squad leader when he was a young plebe at the Naval Academy. Since then, we've remained extremely close and have been on an eternal road trip ever since. I invited Phil on the show with me to discuss how we can build bridges of social capital within the black community. My nonprofit organization, Ironbound Boxing, has been extremely blessed as of late, thanks to many of you listening to this show. The veteran community has been such an anchor for us, helping us navigate the challenges of the pandemic and positioning us for long-term sustainable success. I've come to realize that the key to the success of my program is the social capital I've been able to leverage as a Naval Academy graduate Marine infantry officer, and entrepreneur within the veteran ecosystem. I just have so many great people and networks around me that it's hard to fail. I'm also aware that many of the people I serve in the community don't, which is why my life's philosophy of lifting as I climb is so paramount. On today's show, Phil and I discuss the obligation we have as black men to build bridges of social capital for our people and the challenges that come with it. The reason I actually have this platform is to be able to have these type of conversations, and I'm so thankful I'm able to share it with you all. I plan to get Phil back on the show in the future to do a deep dive on his life and his journey through the halls of one of the world's most elite business schools. But for this appearance on the show, we wanted to focus on social capital. Either way, he'll be a recurring guest, and I look forward to having many more of these types of conversations with him on the show. This discussion is hot off the press as we recorded it this afternoon, August 25th, 2021, and I decided to immediately run it for you all, so I hope you enjoy. But before you hear from Phil and I, if you haven't done so already, be sure to head over to confessionsofanativeson.com and sign up for my newsletter. I'm publishing a Substack, our newsletter platform, where I release a newsletter every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern. I promise not to spam you, but I'd love to hear from you in the comments about some of the topics I cover on the show 
as well as topics you'd like me to either cover on the podcast or write about in the future. In the latest newsletter, I continue my thoughts on the pullout of U.S. forces from Afghanistan, so be sure to check it out and let me know what you think. I'll be sure to include the link to my newsletter in the show notes. This episode of Confessions of a Native Son is brought to you by my organization, Ironbound Boxing, a nonprofit based in Newark, New Jersey, that provides free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities to Newark youth and young adults. To support the cause, visit our website, www.ironboundboxing.org, to make a donation today. I'd also like to acknowledge our sponsors, Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. As always, I appreciate you for sharing your time with me, and I hope you all enjoy the following show. Circle back to the hood and teach them youngsters to do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And circle back to your hood and teach them youngsters to do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And we are live. What's going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the legendary podcast, Confessions of a Native Son, hosted by yours truly, Iron Mike Stedman. Today, I'm joined by, I even I always say brother from another mother, and I have so many of them, but uh, my good friend, frat brother, fellow Marine, fellow, what, what, what do you call us, Pip? I think uh, I would tell the story of Damon and Pythias. I think uh, there are some friendships and some relationships that transcend uh, brotherhood, and that's how I'd classify our friendship. It's It's been an honor uh, knowing you over the last couple of years. And I'm honestly excited to see where our friendship goes. Me too, man. And uh, so good to finally have you on the platform. For those that have been longtime listeners of this show, you've probably heard me hint at uh, Philip. You know, he's my, uh, we served together in the military. Although we didn't deploy to Afghanistan together, we did deploy to um, the Japan and the Philippines. And uh, he had a privilege of uh, going and graduating from Harvard Business School as well as Harvard Kennedy School. Correct. Where you got your master's in public policy. Mm-hmm. So uh, he did the dual program there. But I mean, that's only a, a certain level of, how do I say this, right? There's That's so limited just to describe you in that way of just like being a Harvard, Harvard Business School graduate. There's so many different aspects of your personality. And I think one of the things you and I always talk about is not letting stuff necessarily define us. We are who we are. If anything we do, it's more of an amplification than anything else. Yeah, I would say... Harvard does not define me. At the end of the day, I'm my father's son, and he instructed me as a young you know, boy turning into a man what I should do. And so I just try to remember I'm my father's son when I make decisions. And so far, that's kind of kept me on the right path. So I know we just kind of jumped in and started chopping it up. Yeah, um, of course. And there's a couple of reasons why we did that. One, Philip Jones's time is worth $10,000 a minute. <laughs> so we might have to jump at any moment. But what I want him to do is go ahead and just kind of introduce yourself to our listeners who aren't familiar with you. Hey, everyone. Uh, Philip Jones, or Pip, as some of my friends call me. I was born in Okinawa, Japan, uh, the son of two Air Force pilots. So my dad flew F-15 Eagle um, one of the first black top guns and my mother is a navigator, was a navigator, um, for the KC-135, which is a tanker platform. We, you know, military kids, so grew up all over the world, 
my parents are very strong in their faith. So after their 20 year career was concluded, they decided to get out and forego other promotion opportunities uh, to become missionaries. So we traveled a little bit around Southeast Asia, uh, my father and mother helping churches grow and develop. And then eventually we came back to my hometown city of Newport News, Virginia, uh, where my parents are now the international directors for uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, which is a, a global Christian nonprofit, if you will. Um, like any good son, I decided to do the opposite of my parents. So instead of going to the Air Force Academy, um, I was blessed to get a nomination to the Naval Academy. I think I wanted to be a SEAL just like everyone else. But, you know, meeting Mike and meeting a lot of the mentors that I had uh, through Omega as well as the Academy, I decided to go to the Marine Corps, uh, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, which they're currently right now in Kabul doing evacuations at the airport. Uh, best battalion and best group of men that I've served with. Did that for about uh, three to four years. And then I finished up my last two years as an instructor at the basic school. Uh, realized that I wanted to be uh, not in the spotlight, but I wanted to, to do public sector uh, and to find a role that feeds my soul and not just my belly. So I decided to do the joint degree program at Harvard's business school, as well as the Kennedy School. Um, exposed to a lot of different thought leaders across different industries. Um, ultimately uh, graduated from, from Harvard about uh, four months ago. I'm currently a consultant at the intersection of the public and the private sector for Bain & Company in D.C. and uh, looking to run for office in my hometown of Newport News in a few short months, Mike. Man, that's a lot. Of, that's, a, that's a lot right there to unpack. <laughs> and honestly, I got to get... Phil's going to be a recurring guest. We actually tried to get him on the podcast before, but I tricked it off because I left a piece of equipment back in my apartment. So we weren't able to record. But in all seriousness, I want to get Phil on and I want us to be able to do a deep dive on kind of his background, his experiences at the Naval Academy and being a Marine and, you know, uh, Harvard at, you know, this elite level of, I will call it, is it elite level of capitalism? Is that safe to say? I wouldn't say elite. I don't like that vernacular, but I think it's access. I think that's the the crux of the issue. And I think during this podcast and other episodes, we're going to talk about individuals' access to capital and how that has um, an outcome on the success of their venture. Yeah. So uh, needless to say, we're going to do a deep dive on that because y'all have listened to me. Y'all know my feelings on some of these topics already, but it's another level when you have somebody who's kind of in the in the midst of it. Right. So he's, he's been behind the veil. He's seen some of these places and I, I just would love to get his perspective on that um, and his story of navigating through that. But for today, uh, since I wanted to um, just kind of make the most event, take the most advantage of the time I have with limited time I have with Phil today, we're going to actually talk today more about building bridges of social capital. Mm. Me and Phil talk all the time. Uh, I feel like we call each other at least every week. And we're always talking about issues that are going on in our community uh, the veteran community, the black community, American community. And uh, we just kind of have this free flowing dialogue with each other. And the same thing for our friend, you know, Thomas Payne. And honestly, I think all three of us could have a really dope show. But that's neither here nor there. But um, I think it's, a, it's an important thing to talk about now because, you know, one of the things I'm starting to realize is that my value prop at Ironbound is really the social capital I'm able to bring to the city of Newark. And to be quite frank, mainly through my veteran connections. You know, we were gracious enough to get an amazing donation uh, this past weekend from a donor and all through a veteran that I connected with, you know, through my work with Bunker Labs. And so we stayed top of mind and, uh, you know, people are just constantly pushing support our way. 
And so as humbling and as amazing as that is, it just made me really appreciate the level of social capital the veteran community uh, gives me access to. And also makes me self-aware of the lack of social capital that a lot of people that didn't necessarily serve in the military have. And so I want to chop that up with Phil. But before we do that, we got to give our confessions. So uh, let me think of my confession. I think with regards to this conversation, right, there's been a lot of talk post-George Floyd about access to capital. Um, you know, there's been this giant push of getting, you know, black veteran owned businesses access to capital. You've got the venture capital firms that are trying to push money out. You've got hiring practices. You've gotten all this stuff kind of going on. And I don't know, man, my view of stuff is starting to kind of change just because like, I think for me, like, I don't like asking people for anything and I don't like demanding things from anyone. And so the more I kind of think about stuff, you know, I feel like within our community, there's this like demanding of compensation, whether it's through reparations, whether it's through uh, access to capital, whether it's through all this different stuff. And don't take it the wrong way, what I'm about to say, but like, I just keep studying this idea like power, mm-hmm. you know? And like, I feel sometimes that like, when I, when I don't, I never really believe in people's intent to do right by us at scale. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that if you are given access to loans or venture capital or uh, hiring issues, a lot of people tie it to, a bottom line of somehow, mm-hmm. like if they're doing this is because it's costing them money in some way, less about like the genuine good of like, Oh, I want to, I really care about the uplift of black and Brown people. Mm-hmm. But I guess what I'm trying to come back full circle and say is that like, I don't believe I'm not confident that demanding is going to work. Mm-hmm. So I like to maneuver as if I'm not getting anything, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I just want us to, I don't know, man, I just, I think we can waste time mm-hmm. waiting on people to do right by us instead of just doing right by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I hear you. I think there's a quote that says, um, the scariest thing to hear is I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I think certain individuals probably underserve populations or groups of individuals that have been historically disenfranchised. They have to have a, we all, we got mentality. Um, I think certain people had that and that is why they've been successful, but the government or uh, no macro scale thing is going to solve your individual concern. It has to come from you and from the family. And so that's always where I've got my source of strength. And I think we need to kind of expand that mindset. So looking forward to, to having further chats about that. Yeah. I think it comes back to like, for me, like, I know I don't like being told to do anything. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to be forced to do anything. Mm-hmm. And when I think about people that feel like they're forced to give to black businesses, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Or they're forced to do this for us, right? I can understand the kind of resentment that probably makes them feel, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you do it, do it because you want to do it, mm-hmm. right? Don't necessarily do it because I got a gun behind your back, you mm-hmm. know? And then it's going to bite us in the ass later, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's just like a different way of thinking. And I don't want people to take it the wrong way. I'm not like, anti-supporting black businesses or black capital or all this other stuff. But man, that's just like, I've just seen so many people waste around Mm -hmm. waiting on someone else to do for them. Mm -hmm. So I would say this, I think slavery has been and will forever be the original sin. um, And that is going to have negative externalities that are probably going to resound for centuries to come. Um, That being said, I think, Martin Luther King Jr. was the one that told about that told us that we should build coalitions and that we should seek out allies whenever we're trying to 
to change the world for good. And so when you talk about, you know, don't being forced to do this, or I, I completely understand that. I think it just comes down to what one, who has the power Two, can you get them to join a willing coalition? And three, what is the output or what's going to happen when you have this willing coalition and are things going to change? Because if you look back to historical speeches from uh, JFK or um, even President Obama or, you know, four or five presidents ago, nothing really has has changed when it comes to at least in this conversation, the amount of capital that is available to black and brown individuals. Um, and I think that goes down to, it's really who you know. Yeah, and I think it's, again, that's why we're gonna be talking today about social capital. But like, again, just kind of hearing you talk, I think, you know, one of the things that I've been, I guess, I guess my sense of feeling is that like, it goes back to power. And I feel like even if you don't have any money, whatever, right? You still hold on to some form of power yourself, right? Like we all have this inherent power, but when we give up power by validating other people, mm -hmm. so like if there's a company out there or there's a firm out there that is, doesn't do right by black people already, you know, and then me going out validating them, asking them or begging them to do right by me, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm losing a sense of power versus like somebody that's like, they just already kind of doing the work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people struggle with that with that issue. And I wouldn't necessarily say that you're validating a large business by incorporating DE&I or kind of going to them with your hands open. I don't think you're validating them. I think they have all the power, at least from a financial perspective. Um, yeah, I, I, just, I just, I don't believe the hype that by donating money or by going to these companies and trying to uh, get them to help you that you're validating them. I, I just don't, I don't believe that. That's where we can... Maybe I'm, maybe I'm speaking wrong. I don't know. I don't know. I got to think through it. This is why I like doing this podcast because it forces me to articulate my thoughts. So maybe I'll write about it more so in like a newsletter and then we can explain, debate it some more. But here's what I want to say too about allies, right? You know, after George Floyd, there was this big push of all these allies out there, whatever. Man, a lot of y'all here listening on this platform, you guys have been my allies from jump. You know, shout out to my guy, Ian Kilo. Before Thrive was a thing, you know, as we were, in, we were launching our entrepreneur program here in Newark, all I did was reach out to Kilo and I just let him know something that I was working on right off the bat. Boom. Send a donation. No questions asked. And for me, it was just like, damn, you know, I was just like, I really appreciated that. And it just kind of shows you of like, man, I don't know. There's again, forcing allies or whatever that is. I even like using terms like that versus just having good people around you, you know, people that believe you. And support and support you. So I'll always appreciate them for that. They always they always say brotherhood is the very price and condition of man's survival. And I think we can just extend that to, to allies. I think when you talk about finding allies, I think it comes naturally. And I think it comes when you meet people where they where they are. Yep. There's no elitism. There's breaking down barriers and meeting people where they are. That has always been historically the best way to accrue allies. So let's just go ahead and transition and start talking about social capital and okay. how we build bridges for it within the black community. I'm here. Let's do it. And to set the stage for it, you know, you and I are both very blessed, right? We come from elite institutions. I went to Rutgers for my master's. So yeah, Pip was looking at me they're like, that ain't elite. <laughs> nah, I'm teasing. But we both went to the Naval Academy. We're both Marine officers and we have just an amazing networks. We have amazing networks that we've accumulated mm -hmm. over the years. And I would not be genuine if I didn't say 
you know, there are a lot of black people that are talented in this country that did not serve in the military and don't have near as much support as we get mm -hmm. as, as veterans. And so, you know, this conversation starting of like, how do people like us that come from these elite places and these strong networks, how do we funnel that capital to community, to our community and areas that need it the most? So that's an interesting topic. And I, I want to set the stage or, or level set, as they say in consulting speak. I think the wrong way to approach this conversation is to approach it from a sense of paternalism where I know what is best for people that were not as fortunate to have education. So I'm trying to avoid that, that kind of path completely. That being said, and I'll go back to it a lot. Um, it's something that my father told me when I was very young and I've tried to live by it is uh, to whom much is given, much will be expected and required. And so that's always how I've tried to, to live my life. And so I think in our communities, there's a sort of impetus, if you will, that people have all these talents and skills and they should be bringing it back to the black community, but they're not. There are things that are, you know, get in our way, whether it's prestige of a job that's not in a, probably a smaller city. Is it all my friends do this, a certain lifestyle? So I completely understand that. But to answer your question, I think it's, we show up where we're present. I think being present and having proximity to your issues is gonna, that's gonna be your 80% solution. Just being there on a day-to-day -day basis, meeting the people where they are, that's probably the best way to have two different networks align and just kind of be close to each other. But that sounds like common sense, right? But why is it so hard as we start to ascend, you know, in this capitalistic society, right? Like, you know, many people come from certain neighborhoods and then they grow up resenting it or whatever. And then they go off and get a, go to college, get a good job. And the last thing they want to do is move back to some of these communities. Mm. So how do we keep talent in these communities to cultivate the next generation while simultaneously you know, living happy and fulfilling lives. Yeah, so I'll say two things. Number one, I think a lot of individuals who've had the opportunity to go to higher institutions, they don't come back because of opportunity cost. So where they came from is a food desert, it's a job desert, it's not safe, and they want to essentially elevate and level up and raise their family, usually in the suburbs, in a, in a wider community. And I don't think there's anything wrong with necessarily saying that, um, mayor Tubbs of Stockton, California, he was the last mayor of Stockton, one of the youngest mayors, I believe ever in the history of the United States, definitely in California. He had a program where the city would pay for individuals, a certain percentage to go to college with the hope and with the investment into, Hey, we're going to invest into your college. We want you to come back when you're done. There was no contract signed but it was sort of a unwritten rule. We are investing in you, the future citizen of Stockton, come back and help us solve these issues. Um, you know, unfortunately he was kind of voted out of office before we could see the benefits of that program. But I think that mentality is what is going to have to change in a lot of uh, minorities' minds. No one is going to solve our issues, but us. And I can remember, being a plebe at the Naval Academy and someone said, we all we got. Like, honestly, at the end of the day, the government can always provide that left and right uh, adjustments and rudder steers, but true change has to come on the ground. And as you know, with your time in Afghanistan, like nothing can be accomplished unless there's boots on the ground. And 
that mentality has to apply to the inner city and to communities that have been disenfranchised, whether that's Newark or, you know, rural Ohio or West Virginia. Um, if people who are from there and love that area don't come back, I think what you're going to see and what you already see is a shift toward the cities where people are moving toward urban cores. And a lot of the rural uh, population has been not dying out, but they're not just being, they're not being replenished. Um, and I believe the current census data supports that where the cities are just expanding and growing um, while the urban core is essentially staying, I'm sorry, the, the rural areas are, are staying the same and you know shrinking over the past decade. So hearing you talk kind of brings me back to my first point about okay. why I have an issue about demanding Yeah, is because you, like what we're talking about, like we've got educated black people, black and brown people, right? We've, some of us have ascended economically, whatever. And then something like George Floyd happens, right? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, everybody's aware of the plight that a lot of black Americans face in this country. But at its core, whose responsibility is it? That's what it comes back to. Uh -huh. You get what I'm saying? I hear you. And like, I'm sorry, but like, does a black venture capitalist or a black lender hold more responsibility for his community than somebody outside of the community? You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I think like, a lot of the infrastructure we need, we we have to set the example for that is what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if necessarily we are. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges I talk about before about like my pushback about some of these schools is we send our best and brightest to off to these elite universities mm -hmm. with the intent that they're going to come back and invest in the community. But a lot of times they don't necessarily do that. Mm -hmm. And then they use all that knowledge, skills and talents to basically invest in the the system at the expense of our own people. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying like, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to virtue signal by any means. I'm just kind of having a conversation, mm -hmm. but I do think that like we, the responsibility for black people has to fall on black people. That's not of to course. take off. I'm not discrediting anything that's happened in slavery or, you know, the Jim Crow and all this kind of stuff. I'm talking about right here, right now. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see anyone who, I think we got to be responsible more so than anyone else. No, I mean, I, I think we're, we're saying the exact same thing. I mean, looking back in history, um, the black veterans who fought in World War II and were denied their GI Bill rights, that was only a few decades ago. So we're only like a few decades uh, and centuries even past discrimination or even slavery um, as an institution. So um, we still have time. You know, I want to to tell all of our listeners, like, progress has been making, I think we're, I think we're on a good track. Um, so I'll, I'll say that. I mean, I think about somebody like myself, right? Grew up in a single parent home in East Texas, um, had a chance to go to college. Would have never thought I'd be an entrepreneur and I'm still very much in the hustle, but I have like bougie problems. I was talking to the guy at the coffee shop. He's like, Mike, you got first world problems. I'm like, can I get some almond milk in my, uh, <laughs> in my mocha latte, please? Yeah. Not a lot of sugar. Um, but it wasn't always like that. And so, you know, I'm always making sure I'm self-aware that like, I'm, am I speaking from a place of privilege now um, that that skews my view that a lot of other people have, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I've kind of transcended, right? But I also am aware of, how do I say this, right? I'm also aware of the reality of what it means to kind of live the life I live as well. Mm -hmm. You know, when we lost our frat brother, Daryl Hunter, mm -hmm. You know, I had a little woe was me moment of like, man, I'm 34, freaking teaching boxing in a leaky recreation center in Newark, hustling, you know? And it's like, I'm watching the rest of 
you know, my peers ascend economically, mm -hmm. right? Um, in terms of like their net, their their net worth, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and you know, you constantly. I mean, I would be a, I would lie to you if I didn't think about that stuff as well. Now, you would never catch me going off to work for some corporate firm to make a lot of money. But sometimes it's like, hey, man, there is a sacrifice that comes with it. Mm -hmm. And like, what are we kind of missing out on? And I think, you know, while it does sound all good and dandy, like go back to your community and pound pavement, et cetera, et cetera. I, I understand that people have families, they have responsibilities. And so everyone's not able to design their life in quite the way I have. Yeah. So can I say something radical on this podcast? Is yeah, that, go ahead. So we can't have it both ways, right? We can always say that we want to support the inner city and our communities, but if we don't go back, then who's going to go back? So I'm not saying that everyone has to go back to their community. We can always support the people who are on the ground doing the work. The person who doesn't have 10,000 Instagram followers, the person who is passing out flyers or trying to start, um, trying to develop more green space or uh, urban farming or a boxing clinic. You know, we can always do financial donations, right? Money talks. We can always volunteer our time or we can use our platform to support them. So you don't have to be there day in, day out on the ground, but just realize some, some people are. Yeah, you definitely got to have a presence. And I'll tell y'all, you know, when the pandemic hit and I had to pivot my business model, I was teaching virtual boxing classes forever. And then I eventually was able to pivot into podcasts, but it changed a lot of my coaching schedule up, you know? So I wasn't in the gym working with the kids. One, our gym was closed. So we were bouncing around gyms. And I wasn't able to get there in front of the kids and coach as much as I would have liked. And then there's this other aspect, which I've been thinking about, Pip, is, uh, you know, in, in capitalism, we always promote ourselves out of a job. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you start a business or you start a nonprofit because you love supporting the community. Then all of a sudden it becomes a management deal. And now you got to move up. You got to manage other people. But one of the things I realized was me being away from the gym, you know, the kids were missing out on that energy, too. And it's just like, I bring a different perspective on life and, and lens. And so as nice as it is for us to run these things, these social enterprises, et cetera, I still think it's important for us to be seen, mm -hmm. you know? And it is a balance. It's hard, right? Because, you know, you're like, I got to go fundraise. I got to go do all this other stuff. You know, what good am I doing in the world? You know, am I, am I holding us back by spending this two hours or three hours here when I could be spending it to other places? But going back to what you said, I can see it in their eyes mm -hmm. when I come around, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm traveling with them to trips and I'm working their corner, mm -hmm. you know, and I think it's like, we got to balance it. You know, we got to balance like, you know, building these things and, you know, creating that infrastructure, but not replacing the value of what it means to be seen, walking the beat in these communities, spending time with people, eating with people and letting them see not just how you act, but how you live. So, a lot of pundits have said when they look back at President Obama's um, eight years in office um, that the best thing that he did was to be seen by the next generation. So there is an entire generation that their first thought of the president or sight of the president was as a black man. There's like my favorite photo is there's a little black boy in the Oval Office and he's touching President Obama's hair and he's saying your hair is like my hair. And there's a quote that comes out of that is, you know, when they look at us, can they see themselves? And sometimes we just, we downplay the importance of just being seen, whether it's on LinkedIn or just doing what you're doing. Like just, and I'm not saying you have to dress up and wear a tie, but I try to be con conscious of how I move in this world. Um, and we both know like my, one of my other best friends, Nathan Jester, 
someone that I look up to dearly. Um, we were traveling to, um, I think a wedding three years ago. And to those of you who don't know, uh, Nathan was a year ahead of me. He, he did a uh, Harvard's law school program, but we were, you know, Naval Academy classmates, uh, Marine Corps, TBS, IOC, uh, like kind of all the, all the way up before we went to different battalions and then met again at, at Harvard. Um, but everywhere that, everywhere that we traveled, Nate always wore this crimson Harvard sweatshirt. And he, and like, it was a little annoying because we would, he would wear it while we flew back into Boston and we get it. Everyone, everyone goes to Harvard here. Understood. And so one day I say, Nate, why are you wearing this extra large Harvard sweatshirt everywhere that you go when you travel? And he stopped, he put down his book because he's always reading. And he said, cause it's not about us. It's about that little black boy or girl who sees me in the airport and knows that they too belong at Harvard. That was it. But he picked up his book, started reading. Next thing I do, I went out, bought my Harvard sweatshirt, which I hate wearing, wear it when I travel. And sure enough, three months later, I'm in um, Atlanta's airport, I'm walking down, uh, you know, Delta flight, whatever, stopped by this old black woman, old black woman, had to be grandma. She said, hey, like, do you really go to Harvard? I said, yes, ma'am, I do, you know, give the whole spiel. My parents taught me, you know, whatever, whatever. She was like, can I take a picture of you? Uh, I said, sure, ma'am, what for? She says, because I want to tell people that I know that I know a black man that's at Harvard. So never underestimate the importance of just being seen. I think about that now, right? Like my perception on this has changed, right? Like it's like we evolve, we grow. Me and Pip always talk about, uh, what's that movie? The, the Golden Compass? Yeah. You know, watch the Golden Compass. They got these little animals called demons. (laughs) So it's your soul is a demon. And so it's always changing until you reach a certain age and then your demon becomes permanent. So if like it can be a wolf, it can be a fox, et cetera. But our knowledge is always growing, is always changing. I always reference that like the demon. We haven't landed upon our demons yet. But just kind of going back to what you were saying is I think about that now, right? When I wanted to go to the Naval Academy, I didn't grow up around a service academy kind of family like you did, right? Had an older cousin uh, that lived out in California, went to Naval Academy, but that was it, right? And all of a sudden, you know, I'm trying to go through Annapolis. I'm trying to do all this other stuff, man. I, you would have knocked my socks off if I ran into a black midshipman. Mm-hmm. I, didn't see a, I didn't see a black midshipman until I was getting yelled at by him at the Naval Academy prep school. And they were like, because I was staring at him, right? I was on the bulkhead and I just kept looking at him and they're like, oh my God, are you freaking eyeballing me? And I was just like, Eyes my, in the boat. my feelings were so hurt because I was like, oh, you're the first black midshipman I've seen. Uh-huh. I just wanted to talk to you. Um, but it's like, you're right, man. Like that would have been super Im- impactful for me, right? Because I'm already going through this journey. I'm going to all these events. I don't see a lot of people look like me. But if I was walking in the mall and I saw some young, handsome black dude, you know, rocking a, uh, I didn't say handsome, but <laughs> a young in <laughs> shape, uh, black dude, rocking uh rocking a naval academy gear i'd have been like yo man like you going to naval academy and he'd probably be my icon and then god forbid he's like hey if you ever run into any issues or anything let me know you know reach out to me so you're right and you know i think it's like i have this term called dog whistle branding that we've been talking about of like you're not trying to get everyone's attention you're going after someone's a specific person's attention Mm -hmm. and when you do stuff like that that's what you're doing Mm -hmm. No, I, I completely agree. I, um, the importance of being seen cannot be underestimated. And there's a lot of programs 
especially in inner cities where they just, just taking a kid. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you have to take someone who's disenfranchised, show them Harvard and say, you can make it too. That's not what I'm saying, but just showing people that, and maybe I'm speaking, if we really want to get, you know, political and talk about the images of minorities that are displayed in the media are usually like two or three sorts. There's someone who does media, rapper, there's a sports person, and then there's usually someone who's in and out of prison. Those are the archetypes that we're exposed to. Um, and that's not an issue when you have a developed mind, but if your mind is growing and emerging and you're under the age of 16 and that's all you see, then everything that you do in your life is toward one of those three things, whether you know it or not. Um, and actually, like, we're not a monolithic people. We Different hues, shapes, colors, um, responsibilities, goals, dreams, and just showing the next generation what they can do, that is what I want to spend the rest of my life with. And um, not, there's a quote, upsetting the setup. I'm, I'm not doing that, but I do want to change the narrative. And ultimately that starts with a small city, a street, a school and expands because this is a multifaceted issue and problem. And this is not going to get solved in the next generation, but we can take steps toward progress. And I want to be at the vanguard of that. Yeah. And and one of the things, you know, going back to what you just said about, you know, all this negative stuff in the media, right? Like whose responsibility is that? Especially if we're distributing this kind of content out there. And so that's why, you know, like I try to do my best on my platforms to create you know, good, educational, thought-provoking content. You know, I'm able to host a transition for Bunker Labs, focus on entrepreneurship. I've got Confessions of a Native Son, where we're able to do a little bit more deep dive. Uh, I don't even call it thought leadership. What's the word for a show like this? I think it just challenges the status quo, and it shows us what we could be. Yeah, and it, it really forces me to kind of think through my thoughts. But this is one of the things I've been doing to build bridges, is that, you know, I really, obviously, I'm really passionate about entrepreneurship, um, and me being blessed as a black veteran entrepreneur. I'm in my studio in downtown Newark just from being a veteran entrepreneur, right? Pip and I are podcasting from, from my office, my studio, at like a really nice office, like the nicest office building in Newark. And so one of the things I've been doing is I've been bringing black founders on this platform as well, you know, non-veterans um, to get on here and to connect with you all so you can learn a little bit about what they have going on. And that's something I'm going to continue to, expand upon. But, you know, Pip, I want to hear your your thoughts on, you know, what are some other ways we can build bridges? Because this is a whole nother topic we're going to talk about on this platform, which is the Booker T. Washington versus W.B. Du Bois debate. <laughs> we'll probably have to censor that until yeah, after right, I censor that until I run for office. And uh, but, you know, there's this idea of the talented 10th. And when I was at the Naval Academy, I thought I was a talented 10th. I was like, it's on us. We're the talented 10th. You know, then we we're Omega. We're men of Omega. So we're going to go back to our communities. We're going to uplift our communities. And then you start getting here. You don't really see a lot of talented tenth out here. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm saying in the, the talented tenth that we think that we put on the pedestal, this black excellent kind of talented tenth. They're not the ones I see working at the high schools. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not the ones I see in the communities. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe onesies and twosies. Maybe they'll come in and give a speech or something. Mm -hmm. But our, the perception of the talented tenth that you would think is not uh, reality. Yeah, and so I think the talented tenth moniker um, is not appropriate for today's, uh, I guess, day day and age, to, for lack of better words. Um, I think that worked back then, but I think now 
think our talented tenth pursue um, other activities, right? Probably increasing network or just doing other things not in the community. And so would we even call them our talented tenth anymore? Um, when you have like that school teacher who's like day in, day out grinding, who's helping her kids prep for the, you know, SATs, the PSATs, feeding them, right? People who are, uh, who go to school mostly just to, um, to get some food in their bellies. Like, should that be called the talented tenth? And I think I always try to break down barriers and, and, and just, you know, we don't need to divide between elites and non-elites and rural or urban. I think all of that is just a way to divide and to prevent collaboration. Um, but there's something to be said about that person who's right now is grinding right now, who is, doesn't have a lot of followers, who may not have gone to the best schools, but is day in, day out in the community, making it a better place. How do we support them? How do we elevate their voice? I think that should be the real conversation. I think one way to do it, and I learned this from you all out there that support me, is by having Overwatch. You know, in the military, you go out on a patrol or something, you push up some Overwatch on the rooftop to watch the patrol, got some snipers up there, you know, just to make sure that that unit on the ground is protected. Mm -hmm. You know, when I started Ironbound, I would check my email one day and get a random donation for like $400 or $1,000. I'm like, who the heck is it? Some Naval Academy classmate I made have said one or two words to mm -hmm. the entire four years there is like, Mike, I'm watching you. We're proud of you. Keep doing the good work, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm just like, dang. So I labeled that Overwatch. And I think one of the things that we can do as bridge builders is be on the lookout for these other founders that we know are under-resourced. And I'm just talking about this is on entrepreneurship, right? But this in general is like, how can we have Overwatch on the people in the trenches mm -hmm. that are our are ground force within the black community to make sure we're funneling support their way. Yep, and I, I've been using the wrong word. It's not elevate, it's how do you amplify their voice? So uh, you can amplify uh, via your platform, uh, via your hard work, via your consulting skills, your legal skills. You can provide something that they probably don't have in these smaller communities and you can help them just kind of expand and, and grow whatever they're currently doing. Um, and at school, they taught us that, um, how, do, how do I say this? There is a, people have been elevated and people have learned so much at all of these institutions. How do you put that to good use? And sometimes I think we think we have to be the one who's like walking the street when really you can, you can create or you can use a business or a framework that will allow others to grow. And I think sometimes we can do that. So I'm not, like the person who created Teach for America, like that's an organization that, you know, helps and like makes teachers go into kind of rural and urban cities. Like we can always create something, we can elevate, we can amplify via money, via time, via our network. Um, and so what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna give, our, I know our, for the audience, we've been talking a lot about pie in the sky, kind of meta things, but what I plan to do, right? If I'm ever elected next year, November 8th, we'll see what happens, Mike Stedman, um, is I'm gonna establish essentially a thousand mentors. So. I'm gonna use my network and for a thousand kids in my city of Newport News, we're going to assign them, if you will, a thousand mentors um, or one, one mentor per child. In, in my life, mentors, whether it's the coach, um, track coach, basketball coach, uh, the clergy, people, my godfather, people that have been in my life have helped me get to the path that I'm on and have helped me guide me as, you know, as we call it in the Marine Corps, my left and right lateral limits. A lot of people don't have that. And so 
what I plan to do is I plan to use my network to help people say, hey, what do you want to be? Yep, I got it that you want to do basketball, you want to do some type of entertainment or media. Yep, I understand. What do you want to do? You don't know? That's fine. Let's sit down. Let's assign you someone who's not doing this for like a check in the box or a, hey, I like someone who is invested in you. You want to be a doctor? I know someone. You want to be entrepreneur? I know someone. You want to be a boxing coach? I know someone. I think that's one way we can create systems and processes that can help individuals align with what they want to do. Because at the end of the day, our guidance counselors, they're amazing. They do so many good things for our communities. There's overwork and they're, they're just tapped out and they don't have the bandwidth or the capacity to deal with all of those kids. So for me, on a tangible and a tactical level, that's what I'm going to do. I think for me, I'm going to continue building my media platforms, whether it's this podcast, Confessions of a Native Son, or, you know, I got some other stuff in the work. And then even just my little, my company, Ironbound Media, concurrently with my nonprofit arm, Ironbound Boxing. So, you know, I'm already supporting youth and young adults in the local community, um, amplifying their voices on our platforms, but then also uh, bringing other people on platforms, on my platforms as well. So, um, and I'll say this before I let you go. You know, one of the things that was real impactful for me recently was my girlfriend, Simone, was in the Black Girl Ventures. Uh, it was like a pitch competition. Yeah, I saw it. it was amazing. And I was able to share her video across my social media. And I tagged the other black female founders. Mm-hmm. I think it's called uh, Hull. I forgot the name. It's Black Girl Ventures. I think it's Halicon. 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 Right? And so they had these amazing black female entrepreneurs from all over the country. And not only did I share Simone's video, but I tagged all these black female founders because I wanted to get them in front of my audience. But like, we're not saying that you have to do stuff. It's nice. We always think about like the macro level and scale, 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 but like more of like, yo, what can you do in your own way to like leverage your social capital to uplift your community? And again, the emphasis I'm saying is, and I'm not letting racism off the hook. I'm not letting discrimination off the hook. What I am saying, though, is we have to lead the way. We got to be the ones out front and then let others follow in the sense of pushing social capital to our community and supporting our people in the best way we can. And I would tell our viewers this as I wrap up that this is an ongoing conversation, number one. Number two, I would challenge our listeners to expand how they view being a good neighbor, right? So, you know, in our day and age, we have our na- we have our family is our inner circle that may be our neighbor that lives to the left and the right of us. Think about your city, your organization as your neighbor. How can you help each other? How can you really become an ally in the true meaning of the word to help people who may not look like you, who may be from a different walk of life, um, to be the best version of themselves? I think that's what it truly means to be an ally. And thanks for having me on the show, Mike. I actually look forward to having this you know, more detailed conversations about this. Absolutely. We're going to have some ongoing conversations. Again, uh, some of the topics Phil and I are going to cover is the business case for racial equity. Uh, what was the other one? The Brookings Institute report, five-star reviews, mm-hmm. uh, one-star profit. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I want to be able to talk about with Phil. So he's going to be a recurring guest. But at the very least, on the next time I get him on here, we're going to do a deep dive in his story. I just got to make sure I have, you know, the two-hour window because y'all know I like to go long and uh, really just kind of pull the veil back on his experiences. But Pip, I appreciate you sitting here and uh, talking with our viewers, our listeners today. For everyone that's tuning in, do me a favor. Go ahead and support this podcast by subscribing on iTunes and uh, leaving me a five-star review. And uh, also feel free to forward this show to anyone in your network 
who you feel identifies with the subject matter. And as a reminder, I've launched a newsletter for Confessions of a Native Son. It took me forever to do it, y'all, but I finally started publishing. So just head over to confessionsofanativeson.com and sign up for the newsletter. I'm publishing via Substack, and you can expect at least one podcast a week from me on Thursdays, as well as a newsletter. Um, and uh, this week, I'll probably talk about um, what I was in, what I was hitting at before about you know the sense of losing power and whose responsibility is it with regards to pushing black capital to black owned businesses. So um, be on the lookout for that. I'll release that newsletter on Friday. And the podcast, this podcast, will drop on Thursday. And uh, also, if you're following me, I've been uh, I'm taking this writing class called Ship Thirty for Thirty. And so for 30 days straight, I have to publish an essay on Twitter, a 250 word essay. And I'm 12 days in at this point. So if you're following me on Twitter, just head over to at Native Sun Speaks to see my essays. And uh, I would love to hear your feedback. Um, feel free to shoot me an email or contact me on social media, Mike at WeAreIronbound.com or at Iron Mike Stebman on Instagram. Uh, Pip, thanks again for joining us. And until next time, everyone. Peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't have feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man.